to uh, Revelation chapter 15. It's where we'll be at tonight. As we uh, continue to take a look at uh, the precursor to the seven bowls. We find ourselves in a period of time basically moving from uh, chapter 10, uh, dealing with the seventh trumpet. So the seventh trumpet is sounding over the final three and a half years of the tribulation period. It's sounding the whole time. And since then, we've been talking about a variety of signs and visions that John saw in relation to that. Moving toward the seven bulls that we're going to at least see the beginning of tonight. So as we look at it, I want to remind you of those things. The signs of the seventh trumpet. The first sign was in chapter 12, verse 1. In uh, Revelation 12, 1 and 2, it says, A great sign appeared in heaven. That's how we know it was one of the signs. You guys tracking with me? It's not complicated. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed in the sun with a moon at her feet. Uh, on her head were a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pangs in agony of giving birth. So the first sign that we, that we see brought up that we've been discussing the last several weeks uh, is the sign of the woman, a picture of the nation of Israel, and uh, the birth of Christ. We discussed that in chapter 12. The second sign is the sign of the dragon. That comes in verse 3 of chapter 12. In chapter 12, verse 3, it says, And another sign appeared in heaven. So we have our second sign. Behold, the great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. So we talked about that. The great red dragon, the picture of Satan that we see in his battle uh, against the people of God throughout uh, Scripture. Then, uh, tonight, Revelation 15.1, we're going to see the third sign, the final sign, the sign of the seven last plagues. The sign of the seven last plagues, Revelation 15.1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So he sees the end. The end is coming of that final seven-year period of time. So those are the three signs. We discussed the signs that we see in the seventh trumpet. We also had several visions during the seventh trumpet. So I want to just back up and remind you of those visions, those things where John says, I looked and I saw. Uh, Revelation 13.1, it says, Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. So we have the beast rising up out of the sea. Ten horns, seven heads. Ten diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on his head. So we see the first vision, the vision of the beast out of the sea. The second vision is in verse 11 of chapter 13. Uh, Revelation 13, 11, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. So we have the Antichrist and his false prophet. Or a picture of a, uh, of a kingdom in rebellion against God and a religious system that has apostatized, that is, turned its back on the true God, a false religious system. Those two visions in chapter 13. Chapter 14, he sees 144,000. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had the name of his father, uh, who had his name and his father's name, written on their forehead. So that's the second time we met the 144,000. It's important because there's still 144. We see them at the beginning. Chapter 7, we see the beginning of the 144,000. Chapter 14, there still are 
144,000 is not 143,000. He hasn't lost a few. It still remains that number. I told you a lot of people get confused about that number. I struggle with understanding or comprehending why. Because the Bible is relatively clear. If you read Revelation chapter 14, like we went through it, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel, virgin males. That's, I, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. That's what it says. So you can do a lot of tap dancing with it if you want, or we can just take it for what it says. 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel utilized by God to take the gospel to the world during this uh, 70th week of Daniel. Next, we see the gospel and judgments of vision. Revelation 14, 6, And I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. So he sees a vision of an angel flying around the world proclaiming the everlasting gospel. The concept, again, that he's laying out for us, the gospel's going out. In fact, when the scripture discusses those who will be saved during the 70th week of Daniel, it says they are without number. They can't be numbered. So many, you can't number them. That's a, that's a large group of people that are going to be getting saved as a result. Then last week, we saw the final harvest. Revelation 14, 14, I looked, and behold, a white cloud, seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And it's the reaping of the world, the reaping of the world. And always when we look at those symbols, scripturally, we talked about it last time, speaks of judgment. It's talking about judgment. Judgment of God being poured out. So we see that final harvest. And tonight, we see the heavenly tabernacle and the final Seven last plagues. So let's look at it together. Revelation 15 says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the name uh, and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after this I looked, and the sanctuary of the ten of witness... In heaven was open, and out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Let's pray. Father God, we lay this time before you and we pray, God, that you would just grant us as we come to your word, as we open your word, Lord, we pray that you give us eyes willing to see, ears willing to hear, God, a heart prepared to receive the seed of your word, God, that we would receive the word uh, with all joy and then search the scriptures daily to see if these things be so, Lord God, we pray that you would anoint this time, 
with your presence, God, your spirit guiding and leading as we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the last sign dealing in this period of time is going to be the great sign in heaven. This great sign. Now, the other signs we can, we can look at, we can see pictures of, but this one he says, the sign in heaven is great and amazing. And that's the total description. A great and amazing sign in the heavens. Seven angels, seven plagues, the last. For in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had conquered the beast in its image and a number of its names standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So the first thing he tells in describing this sign is it's great and amazing, depending on if you have New King James or King James, great and marvelous. The idea is that this sign is beyond description. It is transcendent. It is beyond his words to describe anything other than uh, the picture of the seven angels coming with the seven last plagues. What makes this sign great and amazing? It's the end. This sign is a sign of the end of the wrath of God. It's not a sign of the beginning of the wrath of God. It doesn't say in these seven plagues is the beginning. What does it say? In these seven plagues is the end. It's finished. This is the finishing of the wrath of God. We saw the wrath of God begin in chapter 6, right? The opening of the seven seals. It says, who will save us from the wrath of the Lamb? The wrath of God beginning to be poured out. And here, he, the, the, what makes this sign amazing is this end. The wrath of God's going to be finished in this plague. And these, and these last uh, uh, seven bowls, they're going to be poured out. And that's the plan. We have the end of the plagues, and the plan is, it's wrapping it up. It's wrapping it up. And what, what makes that exciting is immediately after the plagues are finished, what happens? What's the thing we long for? The return of our Lord and Savior. He's coming back. He's coming back. At the end of those plagues, the next thing you see is Jesus in the clouds. Coming back to set up His kingdom. To set up rule to take the nations back. They'll be His again. Those same nations we can read about all the way back. Genesis chapter 10. When God disinherits the nations. And it says he divided the nations according to the sons of God. He, he divided the nations. He, he cut them off. He scattered them out. Remember, he changed their language. You guys with me? Tower of Babel. We track in the, the scattering of the nations. That was the disinheriting of the nations. And then what did God do? He pulled out his own special people. For what purpose? So that he could redeem the nations. Through them, he could redeem the nations. So through Israel, Israel becomes a light to the nations. The Old Testament is full of that kind of description. And then we see the church utilizing that same uh, role as Christ comes and empowers the church with His Holy Spirit to be what? To be light to the Gentiles. Think about it. Jesus calling the nations unto Himself. In Genesis chapter 10, the nations are divided into 70. In the book of Matthew, the Lord says, I'm going to send out my disciples two by two. They call it the sending out of what? The sending out of the 70. Why the same number? Because it's symbolic. It's God saying, I'm going to bring the nations back. I'm going to bring, I'm redeeming the world. The world is 
in a state of condemnation, but Christ is redeeming. And at the end of these plagues, that redemption is accomplished. That redemption is accomplished. So this is a great and amazing, great and marvelous thing that we see. Now the other thing I want us to recognize here, it's interesting, this word wrath is set apart differently from the earlier words for wrath. The earlier words for wrath in the Greek is the word orge. It's a predisposed uh, uh, judgment. It's a, it's a wrath that says, you know, if you do A, B happens. And this is that wrath being poured out. But the thumos, what we see here, is not wrath, a predisposed wrath that God has planned for and decided. The, the thumos is his fury. It's the peak of, the, the, it's also a word for hot or fire. The idea is, uh, if there, there, that's, the, that's the word for really ticked off. Like, I don't, whatever words you want to put there, that's what it is. It, the height of your anger, the, the, the peak of your anger, that is what a thumos is. A intense, unmitigated anger poured out on an, the injustice of the world. Part of bringing that world back into place with the Lord. Psalm 103.9, this is what the Lord says. He says, He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. People say all the time, how come God doesn't judge this? How come God doesn't judge that? We see this, these actions in the Old Testament. We don't see them in the New. Did God change? Did God get saved? Did God discover love? What happened? What, what makes Him different? The Bible says He's not going to hold His anger forever. Not gonna, just because you got away with it doesn't mean there wasn't a price to be paid, right? There was a lot of things my dad knew I'd done I didn't think he knew. Because the beating didn't happen immediately. But the beating came eventually. Usually when I, just by the time I start feeling comfortable, dad don't know. That, that, was when, that was when dad would pour out his wrath. Well, the Lord is going to do the same. In Revelation 10, 7, it says, But in the days of the trumpet, the seventh trumpet, in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Remember, that seventh trumpet, it's blowing the whole time till the seven bowls are emptied. And as that's being trumpeted, as that's being sounded, The description in Revelation says God's going to finish it all. He's going to finish it all before the silencing of that trumpet. Revelation 16, 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air. A loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. It's accomplished. It is finished. So this is all going to get wrapped up. It's all going to be poured out. This wrath, this hot, fiery wrath that God has. Now why? Why? Is there such wrath at this point in time? Now, we've been talking about this. I've been trying to paint this picture for you as we've been going through the tribulation period. What is it that the world is doing to the people who come to faith during the tribulation period? What do they do to them? Cut off their heads, right? Or kill them in a variety of other ways, whatever ways may may come to mind. Now, one of the glories about being a believer is this. Death has no hold over you anymore. When Jesus was talking to Peter, when, when Peter made his great proclamation of faith, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has shown you. You guys know what I'm talking about? And Jesus says to him, 
So from this time on, you're Petros, Peter. And on this Petra, on this boulder, on this mountain, I think he's talking about the confession. I'm going to build my church. And then what's he say? The gates of what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what did that mean? Well, just slow down for a minute. What is the gate of hell? Let me, let me back it up. That word for, for hell there is the word for the grave. So what is the gate to the grave? Death. Does death have a sting anymore? Does death have power anymore? Because when a believer dies, what happens to a believer? Absent from the body is? Present with the Lord. The scripture lays out for us. So there is this defeat of death. That's why we sing songs like death is defeated. Yeah, I'm gone from here, but I'm in the presence of Christ. I'm not in the grave. I'm with him. I'm with him. I find myself in that place. And so he's saying to Peter, on this confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, death is defeated. When people come to faith in Jesus Christ, what are they saying? I believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You will be, what's Romans 10, 9 and 10 say? You will be saved. So we see this picture. The defeat of death is, is this defeat. So why is God angry? Well, what's happening to all his people? This is what God said. If man sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. That was God's rule back in the beginning. That was God's rule. He said, Cain and Abel, when he came to Cain, after Cain had clubbed his brother's head in with a rock, right? He said, your brother's blood does what? Cries out to me from the ground. What's it crying for? Justice. Now, what do you think the earth is crying for? You think in all of our history, there's not a certain amount of Abel's crying out for justice to God? And we just read Psalms saying, I'm not, God said, I'm not going to hold my anger forever. In His mercy, in His grace, He holds. Thank God He didn't bring judgment. Because judgment would mean the end of us all. But he, in His mercy, He withholds that until this, until this time. And even in this time, we just read the everlasting gospels going around the world, right? Yeah, God, is God still giving people opportunity to come to faith? Yeah, but when they do come to faith, guys, what we read in Revelation is they die. When Jesus bids a man come, he bids him come and die. They're dying. They're dying. And God's anger grows hot because the very next thing you see in the next verse is the martyrs standing in the sea of glass. If we look at it, it says right there in in verse 2, And I saw what appeared to be the sea of glass mingled with fire. Now we've already seen the sea of glass, right? Revelation chapter 4 verse 6. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And all around the throne, on each side of the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So we have a sea of glass. But now the sea of glass is mingled with fire. Now always, guys, I told you, symbolism in the Bible is not all that difficult. It stays the same. Fire is a symbol of judgment. What do they do with the sacrifice when they put it on the altar? They burn it, right? They burn it. The sacrifices burn. Fire 
speaks of judgment. You have fire mingled in this sea of glass, this peace, calm, crystal sea. And beside it are standing the souls of, of all of these men. Look at what it says about them. Uh, and, and, and also those who had conquered the beast. That's how it describes them. That's how it describes the believers who come into faith during that period of time. These are the ones who have conquered the beast. Now, how did they do that? Well, if they, either you took the mark or he took your head, right? We talk about that? Either you bowed the... This is not new. Did that happen? Has this ever happened before? The first generation of the church in Rome. You had Caesar worship. If you wanted to be a good citizen of Rome, what would you have to do? Take a pinch of incense and say, Kaiser Kyrios, which is Caesar is Lord. By the way, that word Kyrios in the, in the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the word they use for Yahweh. So for the believer, it was, will you take a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Yahweh. Caesar is God. And what did the Christians do? They said, no, six million of them died. Thrown to the lions, thrown to the wild beasts, until you get to the 300s. So from roughly, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 40, 45 AD until 318, they're killing Christians. Because they won't do that. Same picture we see with the Antichrist. It's not nothing new. You don't think there's other nations? What do you think the nations do that won't allow you to worship? What, what, what do you think that is? What do you think it is when you, when you live in one of these nations where if you are a Christian, they kill you? Or do you actually believe that doesn't exist? There's a, there's a big one. They got lots of money. Saudi Arabia. Go ahead. Go to Saudi. Take out your Bible. Stand on a corner and read it. And then count. See how high you get to. Yeah, that's, those things, that is the, the world in rebellion against God, in rebellion against what he's doing. So we see these guys standing at the glass. What's the picture? They're persecuted. They had victory over the beast, over his image, over the mark, over the number of his name. They would not bow the knee to the beast. They had already bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. And if you do that, you don't have to bow the knee anywhere else. So that is what's going on with them. They're persecuted, and that persecution that they face, that persecution that they've gone through, is what has them getting victory over the Antichrist. But it has also cost them life. That's the picture that he's painting. And the fury of God is burning bright. Because for God, that's my kids. That's my kids. His fury rages. It, uh, it, we also see, what are they doing? They're standing. Standing, victorious. You know, here we are, standing at the sea of glass. The tribulation martyrs, the gates of hell, have not prevailed. And what are they doing? They're praising. They have harps of God. Now, I don't know. They didn't have a lot of different words. I don't know what John saw. If he saw actual harps. I can't play a harp. Uh, but the word for harp is a stringed instrument. So some kind of stringed instrument. I always liked, like, gosh, I wish I could remember the guy's name. There's a Christian artist. He had this cool album cover. 
You guys know what albums? We get people who never heard of an album before. The album cover. On the album cover is the pictures of the band they're playing. I wish I could remember them. And then uh, the flip side of the album cover, the angels are playing. And, and the band sitting down. Anyways, it was kind of cool to watch angels up there just rocking it out with uh, some guitars and, and, and having at it. So, was it? See? I knew somebody as old as me got to know, right? So, John, just in case you didn't know, that makes you old, man. Something like it anyway. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so, but anyways, what do we see? Praise is going on. And Psalm 144, verse 9, guys, it says, I will sing a new song unto you, O God, upon a, a ten-string harp I will play for you. So, stringed instrument, coming before the Lord. What's the point? The point is, there's spontaneous praise that breaks forth, forth from the lips of the martyrs. Not complaint. Not, God, why would you let us die? Not, God, why do we have to suffer? Not, God, why was life so hard? What spontaneously comes from their lips is praise. They want to glorify God. They want to sing unto His name. Psalm 147, verse 7 says, Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. Same phrase. Lyre, just a, a, a stringed instrument of some kind. Psalm 149.3, let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and with lyre. The idea is that there's a lot of ways to praise God. We praise God with our voices. We praise God with our actions. We can praise God on an instrument. We can praise God a lot of ways. Anything that we do on earth to honor him is praise. And that's what they're doing. That's what these guys are doing. In Psalm 150 verse 3, Praise Him with trumpet. Praise Him with the lute. Praise Him with the harp. Instruments being utilized to bring this incredible praise. Now, what praise are they praising? Look at verse 3. They're doing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So what is the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb? Now, he's going to give us the, the words to it in just a moment. But I want to make a connection a little, real quick with the Song of Moses. What was it that the Song of Moses was all about? And why is that part of this? In Exodus 15, we can look at the Song of Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and His hosts He cast into the sea. And His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down to the depths like a stone. The song of Moses was a song glorifying God for God defending His people. For God taking care of them, taking care of those who had come as enemies. And I think that's the link in the song of Moses here and the song of the Lamb. In verse 11 of Exodus 15, it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Again, in, in that verse, he's dealing with another judgment of God. 
When did the earth open up and swallow up people? You guys remember sons of Korah? Remember Korah and rebellion against Moses? They wanted to decide whether or not God chose Moses or God chose Korah. They pushed it a little too far. They really wanted God to make a decision. So when God made the decision, the earth opened up and the guys who came against Moses were swallowed. Sinkhole, whatever, however God did it. And so again, this song is proclaiming God's watching out for or protecting or um, standing for his people. In Deuteronomy 32, 43, it says, Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He will take vengeance on the blood of his children. That's why there's a different word for wrath here. It's fury. Because for the last three and a half years, they've been slaughtering his kids. And now he's going to turn his attention in that judgment. It says he repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. So let's look again at this song, the song they sing. The song of the Lamb and of Moses. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. So we see the content of the song. First, they praise him for his works. What they say about the works of God. Great and marvelous are your works. Lord God Almighty. Panto crater. That word, Lord God Almighty, is all-powerful. All-powerful God. Uh, uh, great and amazing. Psalm 145, 5 and 6. He says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. So they're praising God for his wondrous works. For what God has done. Now keep in mind, the people praising Him are not those people who were delivered by the awesome strength of God. The people who are praising Him for His works, saying that they are, are, are good, glorious works, are those who died. They died because God didn't deliver. They These all died in faith. And if you've been... Coming on Sundays, two weeks ago, we talked about the, how the, the one whom God calls to die by faith that God doesn't deliver as a gift to the world as they get to watch that faith lived out. Think of what a gift it is to the, and assigned to those on the world when hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children are killed holding on to their faith, not denying the Lord. What, what, that's a, that is an incredible gift and sign and work upon the nations as they watch. In fact, oftentimes, Roman soldiers, when they were slaughtering the Christians, would lay down their arms, strip off their armor, and join them on the field. Because they wanted what they had. They wanted to be able to die like that. They wanted to be able to, to live their lives like they were living their lives. And so they praise his great and amazing works. They also praise his ways. 
the ways. They say, just and true are your ways, O Lord. Right? Just and true. The idea of, God, you're right in what you do. You're right. Now, we don't always think God's right when those kind of things touch us, do we? Sometimes we think, Lord, I don't know if you were paying attention when this happened. But these guys, who are martyrs, standing at the crystal sea, are praising God, saying, you're right. And you're just for, for the things that you allowed in my life, for the things that were a part of my life. In Psalm 145, 17, it says, The Lord is righteous in all His ways. You believe that? I don't know if we always believe that. You are righteous in all your ways and kind in all your works. Sometimes we look at things and we don't understand it, right? But the scripture also talks to us about that, doesn't it? In Romans 11.33 it says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So how deep is the knowledge and wisdom of God? How unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways. You understand everything about God? Yeah, I, I can't always connect the dots. But I'm okay with that. Because I believe in a transcendent God. A God that is, one of, his, one of the marks of His divinity is aseity. Holy other. Absolutely transcendent. Above, beyond the, my ability to comprehend and reason to or through. Scripture's full of those concepts. In fact, in Isaiah 55, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Oh, aren't you thankful that God forgave you? I'm thankful he forgave me. I'm thankful for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. What's, what's he saying? Yeah, we don't think the same. Are you okay with that? Because a lot of people really struggle with that concept. And, and the reality is why they struggle with that concept is because they want a God like themselves. They want a God in, in their own image. A God who thinks like me and who acts like me and who, who agrees with me. But that's, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is higher than that. He's beyond our... In fact, it says all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ Jesus. You can't even begin to fathom God at all without a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's then that the veils begin to part and you can begin to see in some way the majesty of God. In fact, he declares... As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts and your thoughts. How high are the heavens above the earth? How far does space go? Does it go a long ways? Can we just agree to that? So it goes a long ways. So, so his thoughts are a long ways higher than mine. His understanding is a lot greater than mine. Yes or no? Yeah, if we're okay with that, then, then we should be okay with a lot of those things we struggle with in the Word. We, when we struggle with comprehending something or struggling with something we can't understand, fall back on what you do know. All your ways are just, and you are kind in all your works. God is good. The best description of that for me was C.S. Lewis. You guys ever read C.S. Lewis? You ever done The Lion, the, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? 
I think it was out of that book. No? You guys ain't never done that? Man, they used to make us read that stuff in school. What do they make you read in school now? Comic books? Yeah, that's what my kids came home with. My, my kids came home with Batman comics. I still, they still got Batman comics. Crazy. Anyhow, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, the, the two sons of Adam, two daughters of Eve, are looking at Aslan and, and, and marveling at him. Aslan is a, is a, is a lion. A male lion, big mane. And they ask the character in the book, is is he tame? And the character laughs. No, he's not tame. But he's good. Not tame. God's not tame. But he's good. And whatever attitude you and I would have, standing before a lion with a giant mane as he roared at us, That would be similar to what the scripture calls the fear of God. That would be similar. If we were in that place. His ways are just and true. What else? They're praising him because he's worthy. He says, for you alone are worthy. You alone, God, are worthy. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name in Psalm 29.2. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. God is holy. Psalm 96, 8, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. He alone is worthy. He's majestic. He is amazing. Beyond comprehension. So they praise him for his worthiness. And then the last thing we see is that all the nations will worship him. What's the scripture saying? Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It talks about the, the humbleness of our king, right? Jesus, our humble king who came in the likeness of men, right? Was obedient all the way to the point of the cross. He died. And then what's the scripture say? He's been highly exalted. The Lord has lifted him up. Him up. So his name is greater than every name that is named under heaven. That at the name of Jesus, what will happen? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. That doesn't mean most. Everyone, every knee will bow. We see all the nations in worship. We saw in Revelation 4, 10 and 11, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. And they say, Worthy are you, our our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So, The praise from the 24 elders, or a picture of the church, praising God. Same attitude. Psalm 66.4, all the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. What is God's goal in all this? To redeem the nations. His goal was never just to save Israel alone. His goal was to redeem the nations, to bring back the nations that had been disinherited. To bring them back. How does he do that? What does it say about the, the church? They are every tribe, tongue, and nation. So if they come from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that means all the nations are being redeemed through the church, right? The nations are being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They are finding their redemption and coming to the Lord. Psalm seventy two eleven says, May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. In fact, 
probably one of the greatest, uh, the, the easiest verses to find in the Bible is finding verses that talk about all the nations praising God. There's a bunch of them. I won't give them to y'all because I'll lose you. But the idea you got, you want more, see me after, I'll give you more. Let's look at the scene in heaven. Revelation 15, 5 through 8. After this I looked, and the sanctuary, the tent of witness in heaven was open. Now, I don't want you to lose sight of this. So often, when we talk about like the, the temple or the tabernacle on earth that was, a, was an illustration of a reality in heaven. You guys tracking with me? So the tabernacle, the plans that Moses had for the tabernacle was an earthly illustration of a heavenly reality. There is a tabernacle in heaven. It's the throne of God. And more often than not, the word used in association with it isn't temple, it's tent. The tabernacle was a greater picture of, of the, or an example of what's in heaven than the temple in all its gold and splendor. The tabernacle, that just looked like a tent covered in goat hair. Did you know that? If, if you were looking at the tabernacle from outside, it just looked like a goat hair tent. Nobody think nothing of it. Nobody realized the beauty and the majesty of it until they got where? Inside. Well, same way with the relationship with Christ, isn't it? From the outside, he has no form or he's not handsome that we would desire him. There's nothing in his, the way he looks that draws us to him. But when you come into Christ, when you're inside, you can start to see the beauty, the majesty, the glory that was inside the tent. And so that's the phrase that's being used here. Now, what I want you to see, a tabernacle, you had a, 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 they call it the door, but basically it's a, just like the veil in front of the tent, you know, you lift it up to go in. You guys with me? And then you had another veil inside, right, between the, between the holy place and the holy of holies. So what he's saying is those veils are open. He says, I saw that tent and the, and the doorway in the tent is open. Now, the door and the veil and the door coming into the outer courts, all three of those were the same material. Why were they the same material? Because they all picture the same person. Who's the door? How do you get in? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And just in case we miss it, he said, I am the door to the sheepfold. You can't get in unless you come through me. What was it? If you look at the design of the tabernacle, the, the veil was made of the same material as the door, was made of the same material as the gate. The whole thing. So when it says they're open... It's, it's John being able to see all the way inside. Now, all the way into the Holy of Holies, the holiest place. What did that picture? We have the, what was there? Ark of the Covenant, right? Which is what? The mercy seat of Christ, the throne of God. That's the throne of God. So everything coming out of that tent is coming from the throne of God. It's coming from the throne of God. So this is what they see. Now, what's coming from the tent of witness? Out of the sanctuary came seven angels with the seven plagues. And how are they clothed? They're coming out of the tabernacle and they're clothed in pure and white linen. All throughout scripture, pure and white linen speaks of righteousness. Clothed in righteousness. That golden sash across their, across their chest marks them as royal envoys. A royal envoy of the king. That means they're representing God. The, 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 
This is not somebody doing something that didn't pass through the hands of God first, right? This is one, they're following God's orders. They're the ambassadors being sent forth. Pure white linen speaks of the righteousness, the golden sashes of his royalty or majesty as he's coming out. And what's their assignment? They're to take seven golden bowls full of the wrath, fury of God. The fury of God in these bowls. They're to take these bowls. It says they had one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls. So always four living creatures. Every time you see the four living creatures in the scriptures. In the book of Ezekiel you see them. In the book of Revelation you see them. In the book of Isaiah you see them. And where else? Let me think. Um, Every time you see them they're all at the same place. The throne of God. It's the only place you see the four living creatures. The four living creatures are what is called cherubim or seraphim. Same word. And and that word means throne guardian. They're the throne guardians. They're always at the throne of God. Saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. The four living creatures. They're right there. The throne of God. And they're handing the seven golden bulls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So they give them these bowls. Now look what happens. The sanctuary was filled with smoke. Now that should remind us of something because that's happened before. When they, when they built the tabernacle and they begin worshiping the tabernacle and, and the, the Spirit of God moved into the tabernacle, it says that the kabod filled the tabernacle and drove out the priests. They couldn't worship. They couldn't come in because the weightiness of God was there. The weightiness of God drove them out. That's what the word kabod is. Other times scripture uses the word shekinah. Shekinah is the brightness of his glory. So when the shekinah happens, usually the eyes get closed. Heads get bowed. It's too bright. Can't look. Can't see. Close our eyes. Bow our heads. The kabod comes. We're on our faces. The weightiness of God uh, pressing all around. So this is the atmosphere in the, the tent of meeting. It's the intensity of God's presence and of God's power. In Isaiah 6, 4, it says, The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. That's the term that they use. The smoke, this presence of God that drove out the priest. Now, we see the intensity of God's power, but we also see... The importance of his plan. Look at it. The whole place was filled with smoke from the glory of God, from his power. No one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues were finished. God's like, nobody's coming before the throne. Nobody gets in here till those seven bowls get dumped out. This last flash of God's fury being pulled out. Revelation 6.17 says, For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? That's the beginning. Revelation sixteen seventeen tells us the end. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. A loud voice came out of the temple from the throne and said, It is finished. The wrath of God is complete. Now, Jesus is coming back. So this is, this is the precursor to those final seven bowls, which we'll look at in the, in the next chapter, chapter 16. We'll see them fulfilled. 17 and 18. Remember I told you when John writes, how does he write? Like a symphony, like a song, right? 
So you get a verse and he comes to a chorus. Verse, chorus, verse, bridge. There's, there's some movement in his style. He's going to look back at the events that were taking place during the seven bold judgments. And in chapter 19, we see Jesus come back. Chapter 20, the kingdom of God on earth. Chapter 21 and 22, new heaven and new earth. And we all live happily ever after. There's the book of Revelation in a nutshell. We're almost there. So, can you believe it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it was 2012. I'm not sure. Why don't you guys stand with me? Let's pray.